Good morning. Uh, If you turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, we will be picking up where I last left off um, at the end of verse 4, beginning in verse 5 in Colossians 3. If you'll remember last time we were in Colossians 3, we sort of began Paul's new section of the letter to the Colossians. So previously in in chapters 1 and 2, sort of into verse 3, we had a lot of indicatives, a lot of what is true about Christ. Paul's teaching about the person and the work of Christ. And in Colossians 3, he begins to apply that, to apply that specifically to the Colossians. We have a new section, which is essentially the Christian life. Section or Verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3 were the introduction to the section. Um, that introduction to the Christian's new identity, who the Christian is in Christ, who the Christian can expect to become in Christ, who the Christian is always to be looking to in order to become that, in order to walk in Christ, which was the hinge statement of Colossians at, in chapter 2, verses 6 through 7. And what you see from an overall look at Paul's instructions to the rest of Colossians 3 is the process of active, progressive sanctification. How the Christian gradually becomes more and more like the one whom he is always seeking, the one who, see, the one who he sees at the right hand of God. How the Christian gradually becomes more and more like Jesus Christ in heart and in minds and in actions. And the process Paul shows us in chapter 3 is something like this. Firstly, it's, it's in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3. It's understanding your new reality and your new identity in Christ. And secondly, it's, it's putting off the old man and the old identity along with its thoughts and practices in verses 5 through 11. And then thirdly, in the last part of the section, it's putting on the new man with Christ-like thoughts and practices in verses 12 through 17. It's essentially understanding biblically what is true of you as someone who is in Christ and then walking out that truth, walking out that new reality by putting off what is not true and putting on what is true of you in Christ. And this put off, put on principle is found in all of Paul's writings and really all of the, the teachings of the New Testament. It's found in Christ's ethical teachings to the apostles. It's found in the rest of the apostles' writing. It's this process, put off, put on, that's in view when Paul speaks of believers as Christ's workmanship or God's workmanship created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's Ephesians 2, verse 10. What are, what are the good works that are prepared for us? They are putting off sinfulness and putting on Christ-likeness. As Paul says later in Ephesians 4, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. That's not the way you learned Christ, Paul tells the Ephesians. As the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to a former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self. Created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. So to walk in good works is essentially to work out one's sanctification in Christ. Being made more and more into the image or likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. It's to work to become more like the one to whom you were joined by faith. To put off the old self, meaning to turn from sins and desires which no longer befit you as a new creation. And to put on the new self, meaning to actively begin thinking and feeling and behaving like Christ. This put-off, put-on relationship, it's the heart of our part of sanctification. What we do in sanctification. We know that we cannot begin to put off the old works born of deceitful desires, Paul says in verse 22 of Ephesians 4, until those desires are changed. Which is what happens when we are born again. When we are born again, created anew in Christ, we are given different godly desires. Which we then act on in the Christian life. And Paul gives practical examples of this in Ephesians 4. In verse 25, Christians put away falsehood. They put off falsehood and and instead speak the truth with his neighbor. In verse 28, another pair is given. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So the Christian puts off thievery and laziness and he puts on hard work and generosity. He puts off what is not true of Christ and he puts on what is true of Christ. But it goes even deeper than that in Colossians 3. Where we'll be this morning. Ephesians and Colossians are sort of sister letters. They complement one another. Um, they're, they're written in, in much the same language, much the same time by the Apostle Paul. But Ephesians focuses primarily on the body of Christ, the church of Christ. Colossians focuses primarily on Christ himself. Ephesians speaks of this put off, put on principle in very practical terms of how Christians should behave. Colossians speaks of this put on, put off principle in terms of what the Christian is becoming. What he has already become in Christ. 
that's what our work in sanctification is. We are striving to live like who we already are positionally in Christ. And as we work, the Spirit works in us to make us essentially what we have already been counted as in Christ. This is a bilateral work, sanctification is. God is, God works in this and we work in this. Yet even in our works, Paul tells us, God is working. Even on our good works, God is working. It is through the Spirit that we put to death the deeds of the body, Paul says in Romans 8. We need to have this balanced biblical view when we talk about sanctification in the church. There are two ways to get sanctification wrong. And both focus on sanctification as a unilateral, a one-party work. The first error of you, sanctification, is completely a work of God. Apart from any effort, apart from any responsibility of man, you just receive it by faith, just like salvation. Um, theologically, this is called the Keswick model of salvation. Kind of rising up out of, out of Wesleyan roots, the Keswick model. It basically tells you to let go and to let God. Right, let go and let God. God will do it in you. God will do it for you. And in this view, all you have to do is give up your, your personality and your personal responsibility and let the Spirit possess you. Let the Spirit take control of you. God does all the work and automatically makes you holy. Makes you holy at the cross. Maybe even sinless and perfect in this life. No effort needed. Just add Spirit. Right? It ignores God's transformative, redemptive purposes in making sanctification a process. And, and a process that is advanced by our own effort, advanced by our works. We learn obedience to the Father after the image and example of Christ. The process of sanctification is God's fatherly instruction to us of his adopted sons and daughters. The Keswick model destroys that idea. But the second error of use, the holiness of sanctification, is completely a work of man. His part of salvation, his way to keep the salvation given to him by God. This is more the classic Wesleyan view of of, Sanctification, which is flavored with legalism. You hear it all the time from moralistic, from moralistic pulpits. God did his part of salvation. Now you've got to not mess it up. You've got to do your part. Do what you can to keep it. Christ took your sin on the cross. Now you just need to keep from any more sin. Keep yourself in the love of God. And the biblical view of sanctification is about what God has done and is doing, as well as what you are doing because of that. Because of what God has done and is doing in you. It's not fatalism. And it's not moralism. It's not letting go and letting God, but it's not going on ahead and forgetting God either. It's always looking up to Christ, beholding him, learning from him, learning what you have become in him and being transformed in that look, being transformed in his image, renewed in mind after the image of your creator. And so that's what we see from Paul in this text as we learn what it means to put off the old self. So I want to read the passage for us in Colossians 3. From the beginning of the chapter through verse 11, and then I'll pray and ask the Lord to help us. But starting in Colossians 3, it says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Father, I thank you for this time that we have together, Lord, to study your word, to worship you in the preaching and the hearing of your word. God, I pray that you would humble me before you, Lord, that I would rely on your spirit only, God. Lord, that we would... Um, see what is true about Christ and the scriptures as you open our minds to understand it, that we would believe it, receive it, and obey it, God, as you open our hearts. Lord, I pray that we would be bound up together, knit together in love for Christ, that we would see him as better, as more satisfying than all of our sin, God, than all of our old ways, that we would see who we are in Christ, and ultimately that we would see Christ. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. So over the last several sermons in the letter to the Colossians, we've heard a lot of imperatives from the Apostle Paul, a lot of apostolic commands. 
The most recent being in, in the first few verses of chapter 3, to seek the things above, or literally to seek Christ above, and to set your minds on the things that are above, and here by way of application and, and implementation of looking up to Christ and setting our minds in Christ is Paul's single imperative in this text today, which is put to death. The phrase is a, a single word in the Greek, nekroo, meaning literally to make a corpse of, to make dead. This word is famously translated in the King James, in the King James Version as mortify. Mortify what is earthly in you. It's that, that word, that phrase, that's the subject of John Owen's famous book, The Mortification of Sin. The verb in Colossians 3.5, it describes an ongoing process even though it's in a single past tense. That's not because the act of killing something that is specific earthly in you, killing a specific sin, is supposed to take place over a long period of time but rather because there is this constant procession of enemies in the Christian life that we are to make dead. These are not earthly enemies in the sense of other people. or earthly authorities, governments, nations. Our fight is not against flesh and blood. Our enemies are spiritual, but they are still earthly here. There's a constant procession of these spiritual earthly enemies. The enemies we are to make corpses of in Colossians 3 are the remnants of our indwelling sin. The rebellion that we had against God. They are the elements of earthliness that remain in each believer. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, says Paul. And this is one of the fundamental practices to walking out good works in Christ. This is the preliminary step. Living in a manner worthy of the gospel. Seeking and setting our minds on Christ. In order to always be looking up to Christ. Setting our minds on the things above. We are called as Christians to eliminate in ourselves everything that would bring our gaze and our thoughts downward to the earth and to ourselves. And in order to to flesh out truly what Paul is telling us here, I want to look at this command in a few different ways. Firstly, we see that we must mortify. This is straightforward. This is the first point. Paul's command, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. But why must we mortify? We see that by the very nature of Paul's command to the Colossians, we must mortify, that we must kill what is earthly in us. We must be killing our sin. But why must we? Why do we have sin left in us? Earthliness remaining in us, left in us to mortify. The major theme of Colossians, after all, is the sufficiency of Christ. That we truly have all things in Him. Before we even knew what we needed as sinners, God gave it to us in Christ. He gave us the word of the truth, the word of Christ, which we received, which we've heard through the providence of God and the obedience of faithful saints like Epaphras in Colossians 1. And our very hearing of that gospel, not just hearing it audibly, but receiving it in our hearts, our response to the gospel in faith was given to us in Christ, who by His Holy Spirit, according to the will of the Father, has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. God gave us forgiveness of sin totally and finally in Christ. He gave us reconciliation with himself through the blood of Christ. God credited the righteousness of Christ himself to us by faith, presenting us before him even now positionally, as he says in Colossians 1, as holy and blameless and above reproach before him. God gave us ministers of Christ who carry out the loving care of Christ to us in the church, which is his living and ever-growing body connected to Christ as the head. God has given us access to all the riches of wisdom and knowledge that are hidden in Christ. Sufficient for all of life and godliness, for every situation. All that we we need right now to be mature, to be fully assured in the will of God, we already have in Christ. God has circumcised us in heart in Christ, baptizing us into his death and resurrection, causing us to be born again, made alive spiritually in Christ. God has given us a new spirit sent from Christ to lead us and guide us and intercede for us. Through that spirit, God has given us adoption into the household of God, the family of Christ. God has ended the tyranny of sin over us, even now in our mortal bodies, and has raised us up with Christ to be seated with him in the heavenly places. As Colossians' companion letter Ephesians says, God has qualified us for an unshakable, unlosable inheritance in Christ, who also reigns at the right hand of God as our king and our priest, our prophet, our intercessor, and our advocate. God has hidden us beyond the reach of man and beyond the reach of Satan, awaiting his second coming for our final presentation to the son as his bride. That's what we find in the first two chapters of Colossians. There is no good thing God has withheld from his people in Christ. There's no good thing. That's so clear in Colossians 1 and 2. And yet one thing God has not done in us, Paul says, at the beginning of Colossians 3. And that's to remove our indwelling sin. 
to make us perfect, to remove any last traces of earthliness in us. If you've been a Christian for any extended length of time, you feel that. You know that there is sin left in you. You know the conflict between the law of your flesh and the law of your mind, as Paul says in Romans 7. The things you want to do in obedience to Christ, you don't. The things you don't want to do because they betray your master, you do. This conflict is, is expressed so intensely at the end of verse, or at the end of chapter 7 in Romans when Paul says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Has Christ not delivered him? Every Christian has been awakened in spirit and in mind to a life of inner turmoil with sin. It still remains in his members. And it's, it's not as if our lack of perfection right now says anything about Christ's ability. Anything about God's ability in Christ. We are promised perfection in Christ. We know that at the return of Christ, those who are still alive will be transformed instantly. Made perfect in Christ. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The same can be said of those who die in the Lord. They are instantly made perfect. Ushered into the presence of God, holy and blameless and above reproach. God could have done this at our salvation or our conversion. God could do this in us now. And yet he doesn't do that. Not because of, a, not because of his ability, but because of his wisdom. God spares no good thing to his people, to those who are his in Christ. God doesn't do things to his children. He only does things for them. He only does things for his children. He's not punishing us. He's blessing us in this. In leaving us in dwelling sin. God doesn't do things to us. He does things for us. He's left the indwelling remnants of our sinful desires in our flesh so that he may demonstrate in the church all the more the sufficiency of Christ in the war against sin. He has, like with his people in the time of the judges, left these enemies of the gospel and of the King Jesus and of King Jesus in our flesh so that we might know warfare and teach it to those who have not known it before. God has intended his people to wage war on sin and self so as to test and to refine their faith and to prove again and again the grace and the might and the sufficiency of our Lord. There's a purpose for the sin that lives in us. We experience even more of the blessings and goodness and mercies of Christ in this gradual destruction of our flesh. And that's why it's the goal for every true Christian in seeking to be conformed to Christ that the the goal is the radical destruction of all their sin. So we see that we must mortify. Secondly, we see in Paul's imperative that we can mortify. That's maybe much more encouraging than that we must. Christ has broken the power of sin. The tyranny of sin over us at the cross. In the death of Christ, we have died to our own sin, our old self, which was crucified with Christ, so that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We've been set free from sin and our desires. That there is an inward conflict in the Christian at all is a very good sign. The unregenerate person feels no conflict about their sin, feels no struggle against sin. There's no warfare there. There's only slavery and submission. Paul's command to mortify is an inference based on a truth that he's already given us. He uses the word therefore, that sin that has died in the death of Christ, that our sin is dead in Christ. The therefore of Colossians 3 is rooted, Colossians 3 verse 5 is rooted in verse 3. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. As Paul says elsewhere in, in Romans 6 too, how can we who died to sin still live in it? In verse 11 of Romans 6, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. This is what Jeffrey Thomas calls the doctrine of definitive mortification. Definitive mortification. That every Christian is a sinner who has died in Christ and is dead to the power of sin. No Christian must sin. No Christian must sin. The Christian sins only by choice, not by necessity. Not because of hormones or upbringing or culture or genetics. Not because of background. The Christian only sins by choice. Every sin in the Christian is an unnecessary choice. As Spurgeon says, the position of sin in the natural man is that of a king on his throne. The position of sin in a Christian is that of a bandit. Hiding in secret places. Trying to get back its old usurped dominion but failing in its attempt. Our indwelling sin can corrupt our thoughts, it can influence our emotions, it can restrict our worship and obedience, it can bear fruit in the acts of wickedness if we let it, but it cannot control the Christian. 
It cannot enslave the Christian. So our mortification in obedience to Paul's command in verse 5 is simply an acting out of that fundamental truth. You have died. So live that way. Paul says, live like you have died. Died to your sin. Live out the death of your sin. Sin has no authority in us as Christians. And therefore, we have the ability and the responsibility through Christ, by the Spirit of God, to put those things to death. We are capable as Christians of real obedience to Christ. And this is what Paul is commanding us. We are living out volitionally what is already true of us fundamentally in Christ. And with that freedom, we must confront the remnants of our sin that have been left in us. Exposing them by the light of God's word and driving them out of our hearts and minds as the unwelcome enemies of our Savior that they are. We will not stop waging that battle until we see our Savior. There are no shortcuts to ending the fight against sin. But it is a battle we must wage as Christians by our very nature or we are not Christians. So we must mortify. We can mortify. We see also Paul telling us how we mortify. Verses 5 and 6, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. I think firstly we see in verse 5, the first step to, to going about the business of putting our sin to death is treating sin with appropriate seriousness. This is what separates the truly converted person from the play actor, as Albert Martin would say. There's no biblically minded Christian who does not think and speak and act seriously about that which grieves the Holy Spirit of God and offends his risen Lord. Paul's language here demands that. Paul's language demands seriousness. The tone of this sermon should should echo the tone of Paul's text here. Sin demands death. When it's found in us, it demands death. When it's found in the unbeliever, it demands the eternal death of that person. Paul names the sins of sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness or greed, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. God's anger burns against the wicked every day. God's anger burns against sin and is being revealed against every sin. God's anger burned against Christ on the cross for the sake of sin. He who knew no sin, but was made sin for us. Is there any sin that escapes God's notice? Is there any wicked thought or deed which will go unpunished? We are not Catholics, saints. We don't believe in venial and mortal sins, little sins and serious sins. We are Christians. And what matters to God matters infinitely to us. Sin matters infinitely and eternally to God. Every sin. There's no obedient Christian who is flippant about sin. Whether the sins of others or his own sin. And notice I did not merely say To speak seriously about sin, but to treat it with appropriate seriousness. Paul is not telling us to speak seriously about sin. He's telling us to treat it with seriousness, to slaughter it, put to death, not capture it, not wrestle with it, not struggle with it, not tolerate it. Put that sin to death. Make it a corpse. Don't stop until it stops moving. Drive the instruments of death given to you by the spirit into its heart. Cut that Philistine's head off so it doesn't rise again. Drive those enemies of God out of the land completely. Purge the evil from among you. That's how Christians speak about sin. That's how Christians treat sin. And how how deceitful it is in our own hearts that we can speak that way about sin at church and yet so casually embrace it in other contexts. We've become so desensitized to this in our wicked and pagan culture, to the things which horrify God. We may never openly participate in sexual immorality, from the Greek pornea, also translated fornication, and yet we will be passively entertained by it on a screen. We won't speak blasphemy ourselves, blasphemia there, the word for slander, but we will listen to it without any twinge of conscience in so many different mediums. Our God will not look upon sin, will we? Will we look upon sin? We will not drive the Canaanites of sin and earthliness out of the land so many times because we are content to live next door to it. We keep it alive for our future purposes. We keep it alive in us because it's easier. We won't crucify those things. We've merely refrained from the more blatant or gross practices 
and embrace the more sanitized and civilized inward entertainment of our sins. It's so rare in our culture and it's so rare in the professing church to find people of God who will treat sin with godly seriousness. I was part of something called an accountability group for young men at at a previous church. What normally took place in that accountability group was that a lot of guys in their early 20s would gather together in a defeated circle and confess their rampant lust and sexual immorality and dishonesty and laziness and unfaithfulness and then go around the circle patting each other on the back saying, it's okay, brother, I struggle with that too. Struggle here meaning submission to. I regularly practice these things, not that I put them to death, not that I wage war against them in my flesh. Giving in, practicing unrepentantly. And I remember meeting with one of those young men for dinner one evening. And during that meal, he started telling me about his, his regular habit, his addiction of viewing pornography. Well, at the same time asking me what he should do about his, um, what his, about his fiance, whether he should propose to his girlfriend or find someone more attractive. I suspect someone that looked more like the women he was watching do unspeakable acts online. And I could tell he expected the same answer of me that he always received in that accountability group, which was for me to tell him that that was okay. But that was okay. I struggle with that too. That's all right. He was genuinely shocked. Genuinely shocked when I told him, brother, you need to repent. You need to turn from that sin. That is wicked and it's not okay. You need to turn back to Christ and plead for his forgiveness. You need to turn from this way because this way is death. He never met with me again. He made shipwreck of his faith a few years later because of that same sin, unchecked, uncontrolled. It's our responsibility as Christians to treat the sins of others in our body with seriousness, out of love for them, out of care for their souls. This command here is a plural command from Paul. Put to death. It's a corporate command. Put to death what is earthly in you all. What is earthly in your body. What is earthly in your midst. And if I or anyone gives you a placid answer about your sin being okay, because I'm indulging in my own sin, I need, cre- I need correction and rebuke as much as you do. I need your, cre- your correction and rebuke. This is something we are to wage war together. We are to wage this war as a church body. We are soldiers of Christ, locked arm in arm, advancing the kingdom of God. Waging war together on the front line against our flesh. How can we act indifferently against enemies in our midst? Against sin amongst us. Every true Christian fosters a deep and abiding hatred of sin. An enmity against sin because of his love for Christ. We treat it with seriousness. And we address it personally here we see in verse 5 as well. We wage war on our own sin. Not merely the sins of others. It's one thing to treat sin seriously in someone else. It's another thing to to treat it seriously in yourself. I don't want to encroach on any of Paul Wilson's sermon material. It's in Genesis 38. He'll be there in a couple years, so I'm, I'm good. But there's no better example of this than Judah, the son of Jacob. After the death of his wife, Judah turns aside to a woman he believes to be a cult prostitute while on a journey, who is actually his widowed daughter in law, waiting to be married to Judah's third son. Judah sleeps with her and leaves his personal effects as a promise of payment. Judah's daughter-in-law, Tamar, conceives, and when she's found to be pregnant from immorality, Judah Judah treats her sin with seriousness. He says, bring her out and let her be burned. Bring this wicked person out. Let her sin be burned. That might be an appropriate attitude towards sin. There's just one problem. Her sin was his sin. Her sin was his sin. He felt no qualms in condemning her to death for the very sins he practiced. You see the same thing in King David. After committing adultery and murder over Bathsheba, when the prophet Nathan tells him the story of the stolen and slaughtered lamb, David is outraged over that sin. He's angry enough to kill. And Nathan tells him, you are the man. It's your sin. It looks so atrocious when it's displayed in others, doesn't it? But you nurture it. You have an excuse for it. There's a reason for it in your own heart, isn't there? Paul's command to mortify is not to go around killing the sins in others. The same sins we hate in others, those sins that disgust you the most, Jeffrey Thomas says, exist in seed form in you. Paul says, put to death what is earthly in you. Do you hate your own sin like you hate the sins on display in others? Every unbeliever hates the sin of others. 
Every unbeliever hates the sin of others. They know. They know in their conscience it's wrong. Only the one in Christ hates his own sin more. You should be most disgusted by the sin that lives in your flesh because you know the depths of it. You know how deep that goes. You know how deep the darkness and the depravity goes. The grievousness of the treason against your king that lives in your body. Your goal as a Christian is the radical destruction of your own sin. Until that is the goal, you will never put your own sin to death. Until you have resolved to kill the sin in your members, your body, you are fighting shadows. You're running aimlessly. You're beating the air. Your enemy is not the sin in other people. Your enemy is the sin in yourself. Compare the example of Judah in Genesis 38 with Joseph and Potiphar's wife in Genesis 39. There's a reason those chapters are put together. How does Joseph treat the possibility of his own sin? The very outward introduction of temptation. He flees. He flees naked, if must be. How could I do this against my God? How could I do this against my king? Are you that radical about your own sin? The thought of committing treason against his Lord horrified him. We treat it with seriousness, with appropriate seriousness. We address it personally. Thirdly, we confess it specifically. In verse 5b, look at the list Paul gives here. Look at Paul's specificity in verse 5b. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Paul's not giving individual circumstances, but he is naming specific categories of sin that accord with scriptural standards. He is anything but vague about sin here. He doesn't call it brokenness. He doesn't call it mistakes. His command is not put to death, therefore, what is messy in you. God's word does not whisper about sin. God's word doesn't whisper about anything, but it especially doesn't whisper about sin. Any sin. To speak about sin vaguely is to, speak, is to speak about sin deceptively. Speak about sin deceptively. He names sins, sins that we are to identify in ourselves and put to death through the Spirit. You bring God's Spirit-inspired Word to bear on your sins. You call them what God's Word calls them, and you treat them how God's Word says to treat them. You call your sin what it is. Whether you're doing it or thinking it or longing for it, you call it what it is. Christian, lovingly, your addiction to pornography is unrepentant sexual immorality. How many of us speak about it in terms like that? It's unrepentant sexual immorality. Unrepentant fornication, really. That's what it is. We call it an addiction. Right there in that is the, words, the world's excuse for sin. An addiction. Your long looks at another person's spouse are a form of inward impurity, passion, evil desire. There's similar concepts here. One describing the physical urge and the other the mental side, the planning of or the fantasizing of lust. Both sexual lust and lust for other things. Unhealthy, idolatrous, wicked, sinful cravings. Christian, your envy of another person's physical belongings or vocation or gifts, the rivalry that you may feel with other young men aspiring to the ministry. Your desire for money. Your desire to be known. Your desire to be thought well of by everyone around you to have the approval and praise of sinful people is greed. It's greed. It's covetousness. Passion, evil desire, and covetousness are essentially the old triad of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. They are the desires for more and more, more of what you can't have, more of what you think you deserve. They're the source of quarrels and fights among us, James says. It's uncomfortable to speak specifically about sin. It is. It's uncomfortable for me to speak about it up here. It's uncomfortable for you to think about it down there. It's uncomfortable to speak specifically about sin, especially your own sin. Your own desires, your own thoughts, your own weaknesses and secret practices and hidden affections. Sin wants to hide. It wants to avoid the light. And yet you are charged, Christian, with bringing what hides in the deepest, darkest recesses of your own heart into the open. Confessing it and getting rid of it. Sin only dies in the light. Unconfessed sin is still practiced sin. Unconfessed sin is living sin. The reason why James says, therefore, confess your sins to one another. And pray for one another that you may be healed. Why? Because as James says in the sentence earlier, for the Christian, if one has sinned, he will be forgiven. 
Christian, you're the only person on earth that dealing specifically with your sin and openly is a privilege. It's a privilege that you have that no one else has. Dealing openly, specifically with your sin. The legalist hides his sin. He fears the fallout when other people hear of it, what they will think of him, how they will look at him. He hides his sin because he lives under condemnation. Condemnation from his conscience, condemnation of the law. The one who knows Christ fears what happens to those who refuse to confess their sin because the judgment of God is far worse than the judgment of man. But the Christian doesn't have to fear because of how God looks at him in Christ. You have forgiveness already in Christ. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As John says in 1 John, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why? Why is he just to do that for us, to forgive us and to cleanse us? Because, he says later, if anyone sins, he has an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus is our advocate, our helper. It's similar to but different from Christ as our intercessor, which we've talked about in sermons past. He is always interceding for us living to make intercession at the right hand of God, securing always what we need to please Him. But Christ is our advocate personally as the occasion calls for it. If anyone sins, He has an advocate. When it happens, for our specific sins, the word for advocate is parakletos, helper. As in the case of an attorney representing you in a legal matter. It's only found in this form one other place in the Gospel of John, referring to the Holy Spirit sent from Christ as another helper. Christ is your helper too. He's the first helper. The Holy Spirit helps you in your flesh down on earth. Christ helps you as as your helper before the Father. He steps in and he pleads our case, not because we are in the right, but because he is. Because he is in the right. He is there in the case of every confessed sin, pleading his blood, pleading his righteousness as ours. There's no need to hide your sin as a Christian. There's absolutely no need. What a senseless thing to do when Christ stands ready to defend you and to cleanse you. Not to defend you for what you did, but to defend you because of what he did. He stands ready. To hide your sin as a Christian is to slander the character of Christ. And to express unbelief in the ability of Christ as your advocate. You are to identify your sin by the word of God. Confess that sin specifically, openly. Get it out into the air and into the light. And let Christ do away with it. Let Christ take it from there. You can't kill the sin that you won't identify. You can't repent of the sin that you won't name. You can't be delivered, forgiven for the sin that you won't confess. The Christian confesses sin. Christians confess sin. That's an unqualified statement. Christians confess sin. Finally, the way that we mortify our sins is to deal with our sin inwardly. Verse 5, the moralist and the legalist, they're content to regulate the outward fruit of their sin. We as Christians want to tear it out by the roots. Paul progresses backward from the evil actions in verse 5 to their motives in the heart. The sexual sin of pornea begins with the inward impurity of the mind, which comes from the physical passions of the flesh and the corrupt desires of the mind. The passions and evil desires, Paul mentions, are expressions of greed, of desire, of covetousness, which is essentially idolatry. That's the root of all sin. Idolatry. The manufacturing of idols in our own hearts and the greedy pursuit of those idols. William Barclay explains the root of covetousness and its fruit. If it's the desire for money, it leads to theft. If it's the desire for prestige, it leads to evil ambition. If it's the the desire for power, it leads to sadistic tyranny. If it's the desire for a person, it leads to sexual sin. So as you identify those things, the acts of your hands, you should be asking yourself, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? If your actions don't look like Christ, it's because you're not seeking him in your heart. You're seeking something else. There is an idol there, raised against Christ, nurtured and and revered in your heart. All outward sin is fruit of inward sin. The legalistic false teachers in Colossae were content to pick at the fruit and to leave the root untouched. The Christian knows that it is not what happens on the outside that makes a person unclean, but what comes from within. There's no legitimate mortification that focuses on behavior and leaves the desires of a person's heart alone. 
You can cease from all outward sin if such a thing is possible and still be living in sin. No one else has to see it. No one else has to see it and you're still living in sin. The psychology of the world tells you that you are only responsible for what you do with your hands or say with your mouth. Everything else just happens to you. Right? You can't control your thoughts. You can't control your desires. I was just born this way. I have no power over my, over my orientation. And yet, for, for an unbeliever, there may be some truth to that. Right? They're enslaved from the heart. They love those things. They desire those things. Not so with the Christian. Not so with the Christian. Christ has renewed you. Christ's gospel, Christ's standard, Christ's transformation goes deeper. You are responsible for the thoughts that you think. You are responsible for the desires of your heart. And you are to take those things and to submit them to the word of Christ. You can clean up behavior enough to convince the elders or your family or maybe even yourself that you are converted or clean before God. But Christ sees your heart. His word exposes your heart. He knows what you desire. He knows what you love. He knew that about the Pharisees. They were all about cleansing. The Pharisees were the cleanest people on the planet. They were all about washings. All about cleansing, but it was all an outward facade. They cleaned the outside of the cup. They whitewashed the outside of the tomb, but the inside was corrupt and filthy. The only way you can remove this greedy root of sin is to find contentment in Christ. All sin begins with covetous idolatry. Satan wanted what God possessed. Adam and Eve wanted to be like God. And every human since has wanted something along those lines. Something that does not belong to them. Sin begins at the greedy heart. And sin ends in the heart that is satisfied with Christ. That's what brings us lastly to why we mortify. Not just the motions, but the motivations. We have been given reason to mortify our sin in verse 6 with the coming wrath of God. All unrepentant sin brings death and eternal judgment from God. But you who are in Christ have an even more compelling reason to put off your sin. To put that indwelling sin to death. You are not fleeing judgment as a Christian when you put off your sin. You are pursuing your highest joy in Christ. How often do you hear the word joy in the context of struggling against sin? Joy, and yet yet that's the root of it. That's the root of the fight against sin. That's the heart of the conflict. Fear does not kill sin, but joy does. If you aren't able to exchange the tainted and temporary pleasure of sin for an even greater pleasure in Christ, you will find no victory over the flesh. Mortification is not about eliminating sin, but replacing it. It's putting off the flesh so that we may put on our joy in Christ. Your sin is the greatest obstacle in your life to seeing and savoring Jesus. Seated at the right hand of God. We can talk about all sorts of practical steps to killing sin in your life, but until you are convinced that your sin is standing between you and your highest joy, you won't have the resolve to actually put your sin in the ground. Anyone can stand up here and make you feel afraid because of your sin. It's very easy to do. Only the Holy Spirit can fill you with joyful satisfaction in Christ. And it's only by the Spirit that you put the sin to death because of the satisfaction you have in Christ. Paul begins to remind the Colossians of this in verse 7 of Colossians 3. In these, your, your sexual immorality, your impurity, your passions, evil desires, and covetous idolatry. In these you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. In these sins you used to walk when you were alive to the world and dead to God, but now you have received Christ. And you are to walk in Him. All you had was the passing pleasures of your sin in the kingdom of darkness. But you have the joy of life with the beloved Son in His kingdom. Paul reminds you here of your life before Christ. What pleasure did you really have? What joy did those sins ever really give you? If you are in Christ now and you look back on those things, your sins, your wickedness, your wrongdoing, you don't look on them with fond memories, you look on them with shame. That's all that they brought you is shame. It's a broken cistern full of filthy water. It doesn't satisfy your thirst and you come again and again and again to try to satisfy. And it makes you thirstier and thirstier and thirstier. There's a reason why those people up at the clubs, we've gone and preached, I'll see the same faces every time I'm up there. And I'm not up there regularly. I know some of those brothers are on a first name basis with some of those people. They are there every time it's open. They are the most religious people I know. They're always there. They're there to worship. They're there to try to satisfy their thirst. They come again and again and again because it won't. Paul reminds you of that. 
Did your sin ever deliver what it promised? There's a reason in conversion you left that sin behind and cast yourself on Christ. Would you go back to it now? As Spurgeon says, has it not cost you enough already? Burn, child, would you play with fire? When you've already been in the jaws of the lion, would you step a second time into his den? Have you not had enough of that old serpent? Did sin ever yield you any real pleasure? Sin promised but never delivered. Christ promises and he gives you more than you can ask or think. Before Christ, your sin was an abusive slave master. Christ is a loving and tender and merciful king. Do you see the treason that is at play? The treason that is against the gospel, that is sin in the Christian life. Every sin is a declaration that Jesus is not all that he makes himself out to be. When has Christ not proved to be enough for you? When has he ever been indifferent towards you? When has he proved to be insufficient for your need or your desires in him? Your sin is the greatest insult to the sufficiency of Christ. And that's why we find it here at the beginning of Paul's section on the Christian life. Christian, you have the greatest joy in Christ. You have the highest pleasure. You have it all in Christ. And therefore you must, as Paul says at the beginning of verse 8, put everything that is not of Christ away. Put these things aside. Lay them aside. Put them all away. The phrase there is one used for the changing of clothes in the Greek. Your sin, Christian, is wholly unnecessary for your life. It's like a fur coat on a summer day. It's like when God commands Lazarus to come forth from the grave and he's wrapped in these grave clothes. And Jesus says, unbind him and let him go. To hold on to your sin is to say, no thanks, Jesus, I would rather wear these. They're the grave clothes of our old life, but we have died to that life. And as we walk out in the newness of life, all they do is hinder us. They're a hindrance, a burdensome weight that you carry with you for no reason other than your vanity. You can strip off the filthy rags of your works. You have robes of righteousness to wear. You can't wear them both. You must put all those rags away, all of them. Every bit of them, not some of them. Not just the socially unacceptable sins, not merely the outward sins or the visible sins, not merely the easy sins to destroy. There is no true Christian who knows the goodness of Jesus Christ, who is content to let any sin live in the body that Christ has purchased with his blood. Your sin is unnecessary and your sin is untrue of who you are in Christ because you are in Christ and because it is not true of Christ. That's the purpose of mortification. It's putting on It's putting off all that is not true of the one in whom you now live. Mortification is a preliminary step to vivification, to living in Christ, to living out what is true of you in Christ. You put off what is untrue. You put on what is true. Christian life is a sign to others of who Christ is. And therefore, your life as a Christian either speaks the truth or it speaks lies about the character of Christ. Paul gives a second list in verse 8 of those things which are incompatible with the character of Christ. He says, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouths. And in verse 9, lies. Anger and wrath here are interrelated. Anger speaks to a lingering resentment, a deep-seated anger toward others, which is easily provoked into fits of wrath. Outbursts of anger which lie just below the surface, boiling up into malice which is a general word for any kind of depravity or perversion, any immorality, typically with the intention of harming someone else. This is not like the wrath of God mentioned in verse 6. It's an easily offended, easily provoked, vengefully unjust kind of anger. These are the inward motivations of the heart which bear fruit in slander, from the Greek blasphemia. In this case, blasphemy toward another person, speaking untruths about someone, Reviling others, stirring up controversy, handing out condemnation. Obscene talk here is literally filthy language, foul words, with the connotation of being crude or irreverent or abusive. So Paul's list earlier focuses on the idolatry of the heart, which was mainly expressed through the acts of the body. Paul's second list identifies sinful motives expressed in our speech. And in both cases, we misrepresent the character of the one in whom we now live when we practice these things. And yet... Ironically, I think this second list of sins from Paul is most commonly justified by Christians with the examples of Christ. Christ obviously became angry in the Gospels. How could he not? He is the creator and the sustainer and the lawgiver was faced constantly with the corruption of sin and the evil of unbelief. 
the hard-heartedness of legalistic religion. Christ became angry. He was grieved from the heart. He flipped tables in the temple, as some people love to remind others. He flipped tables. But no one could accuse Christ of being easily provoked. On your best day as a Christian, your anger has never been as justified or as righteous as that of Christ. He is not easily provoked to anger, else he would not be our Savior. We are so easily offended by others, angered because of our pride, eager to get even. And when we express that as Christians, we portray Christ as something other than the God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We use the language of Christ employed with the Pharisees to justify all kinds of slander, which really blasphemes Christ, who created the people we curse with our mouths. And worse yet, it's common for Christians to use the liberty that is in Christ as an excuse for all sorts of obscene talk. Filthy language. It is a shameful thing that profane speech, that crude talk, filthy joking should have any place in the vocabulary of the body of Christ. The liberty in Christ is freedom from that speech, not freedom to partake in it. You can hear profanity from some pulpits today as unserious men argue that they are using the language of the prophets. or That their knowledge in Christ frees them from the societal constructs of curse words. And if you are here today and you, you have those arguments in your own heart, you use those arguments to, ex, to excuse the use of profanity, you've missed the true standard of Christian speech by a mile. The standard is Christ. The standard is Christ himself. The Christian speech is not about what is permissible, but what is productive. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, Paul says in Ephesians 4, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Does your speech give grace to those who hear you? Does it build them up? Do you even desire to build them up? Encourage them in the faith? Stir them up to love and good works? That's what every word of Christ does. If you can't say the same, then you probably need to say a lot less. Lovingly. The first thing that should change in the newly converted Christian, I would argue, is his speech. He's been given a new heart, and from the heart the mouth speaks. You can read about the Welsh revival in the early 1900s when God saved around 150,000 people. Many of those converts were coal miners. And by all biographical accounts, some of the most foul-mouthed people on the planet. And the most immediate effect of new life in Christ for these hardened miners was a complete change in their speech. One biographer wrote that as soul winning spread through the coal mines, profane swearing stopped. Productivity increased except for one small problem. The horses and ponies used in the mines no longer understood the commands of the miners because they weren't using profanity anymore. That's radical. That's new life in Christ. That's the transformative work of the gospel. They put that sin to death. And it didn't stop in their mouths. It stopped in their hearts before it ever reached their mouths. They didn't play around with it. They didn't harbor it. They didn't cover for it. They didn't excuse it. Do we have such a low view of Christ today that we cannot say the same? Lastly, we're told in verse 9 and in verse 10, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. The most unchristlike speech that can ever come out of our mouths is lies. Christ is the truth. And you have the truth. We have the word of truth, the word of Christ. We were born of that truth. Born again through the living and abiding word of God, we are children of the light, children of the truth. We are no longer of our old father, the devil, the father of lies, who was a liar from the beginning. We no longer live in darkness, loving and covering up our sin. We take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. The biggest difference between a Christian who truly wants to put his sin to death and a false professor who merely wants to be perceived as a saint is whether or not he hides his sin. Whether or not he lies. Hidden sin is a work of the old self. Living sin is a remnant of that old self. And Paul tells us, verse 10, that the old self, the old man has been disarmed, put away, stripped off, replaced with the new man. Who is being more and more conformed to the image of Christ. Renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. As we seek Christ, as we set our minds on him, as we become acquainted with him familiar with his character and his virtues and his righteousness, we strip off every practice and every motivation of the heart which doesn't look like him. 
Our goal in mortification is conformity to his image. That's why Paul says we are always to be looking up to him first. Mortification of sin is always accompanied with looking up to Christ. Conforming to his image, his icon. Christ is the image of the, the icon, the icon of the invisible God. And we are being remade into his image. Christ is recovering in us through our sanctification what was lost at the fall. Indwelling sin stands no chance against the transformative power of the gospel of Christ. The passing pleasures of sin don't compare to the eternal joy that is ours in Christ. Will you not but look up this morning and see how good he is? How much better he is, how much more beautiful and fulfilling and pleasing than your sin. All your sin does, Christian, is obscure your vision of the beauty of Christ. Put it away today. Strip it off. Put it to death. Strengthen your resolve. Make your hands ready for war. Don't let your sin deceive you or defraud you anymore. Don't let it steal the joy that is rightfully yours by faith in Christ. And it may be that you're sitting here today and you have no concept about this progressive destruction of your own flesh. You're controlled by your passions. You're enslaved to your sin. You're dead to the joy and the hope and the peace that is in Christ. You might profess to know Christ, but your knowledge of him has produced no renewal in you. And I don't want to shake the faith of any weakened brother or sister in here who is beat up in the war against sin. You need encouragement, and I want you to have it in this passage today. You can mortify. It's not about the strength of your resolve, but the beauty of Christ and the joy that you have in him. You can kill your sin in Christ. You have what you need to put to death what is earthly in you. Don't be deceived by any excuses of your own flesh, by any last gasp attempts for sin to remain hidden in you. Cry out to God for his help. Trust in Christ as your advocate. Get radical about the destruction of your sin, regardless of the social cost or the earthly consequences. Bring those enemies of Jesus into the light and let your fellow saints help you to put those things to death. Seek real accountability. Get serious about biblical discipline. Confess and rejoice. That's your charge this morning. Confess and rejoice. But I do want to shake the confidence of the arrogant in this morning. And there may be some among us. I think there are some in every church. The ones who have nothing but their profession as external evidence of their inward change. As Albert Martin would always say, it's time to fish or cut bait. You may have been in church, maybe this church, under the care of elders, through several rounds of biblical or pastoral counseling, under the preaching of the word, and the ministry of Christ through his people, and you've shown no discernible progression in your battle against sin for years. Do you not fear the wrath of God that is coming on the sins in which you live? Are you so arrogant as to think that God will spare you for claiming his son while denying his power over the flesh? Would the God who did not spare his own son on the cross for the sake of sins practice or spare you the sins you practice do you think you can hide your sin and your hormones or your bad upbringing? The fact that you didn't have a mother or a father, or a, your, your culture, your home nation, your ethnicity, or any other excuse. Will God make an exception for you while he renews every other professing saint in the church? Is union with Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the power of God and the gospel and the living, active word of God not enough to produce change in you? Perhaps it's because you don't possess those things. There's two spiritual realities of which Paul speaks in this passage. Either your sin is dying or you are. Either your sin is perishing or you are. For the one who has died in the death of Christ and is now alive to God, your charge is simply to become in practice what you already are in principle. Dead to sin. Alive to God. For the one in whom sin is not a defeated foe but a reigning master, you need Christ. You need Christ. You need his forgiveness. You need his death to become yours by faith. You have no hope of escaping the wrath of God that is coming on your sin unless that wrath has already been poured out on your sin in Christ. Your arrogance in hiding your sin is the last sin that needs to be confessed. The last sin that needs to die. Come to Christ. He is eager and willing to save, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He is always enough. He always will be enough. He is better, greater than all of our sin, both in his power to transform us and to take that sin and in his beauty and sufficiency and joy. If you bow with me. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word. 
God, the strength that it gives us, the hope that we have, the peace and the joy in Christ as your people. Pray if there are those who do not know you here today, God, that they would be cut to the heart, not because of the eloquence of my preaching, but the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I thank you, God, that you have truly given us all things in Christ, including a guaranteed victory over the flesh, Lord, progressively destroyed as you make us more and more like the image of Christ. It's in his name that I pray. Amen.